wanted to start off just briefly by talking about lists. I love lists. Uh, top 10 lists, top 100 lists, funny lists, serious lists, analytical lists. I can argue about who's the greatest bad guy in you know, comic history, Magneto, or the Joker for hours. I'd probably do that even if I didn't love lists. But, I mean, I just love it. And it doesn't even matter if it's not something I'm interested in. So talk to me about Spanish horse breeds and I'm yawning. Give me a, like a top ten list of the best Spanish horse breeds and why one is better than another. I'm in. It's just something about lists. And even in my Christian life, I love lists. I came across one this week and it sort of led, it was a list of, you know, how you can check your spiritual health. And it had stuff on there, you know, no particular order, but it was prayer, private and corporate worship, listening to God, Bible reading, obeying God's commands, loving God and our neighbors, stepping out in faith, fasting, serving, fellowship with believers. I love it. It's all good stuff. And each morning you can look at your list, each evening you can tick it off, and you know that you're going well. Your relationship with God, it's all good. Are you like me? Do you look at lists like this and just love that feeling of just ticking off, that, that sense of accomplishment as you work through your little you know, goals or whatever you might have? Or maybe you, know, you don't have goals, but you just you know, occasionally you do something that's good and you like to tick that off anyway. But it, whatever your, your approach may be, there's that feeling of just, it's good. Everything's right in the world when you feel like you're doing a good job. But are, you, are you ever like that with God? Last week we saw a group of uh, people that Jesus was eating with, tax collectors and sinners. And we saw how it made a different group, the Pharisees, kind of angry. These Pharisees had some really clear ideas about their own spiritual health. They had a list of uh, their own rules to tick off. And one of those things was not hanging out with sinners. Did I hang out with sinners today? Nope. I'm all good. But there are other things too on the Pharisees' list. Uh, Some of the things we saw back in chapter 6 of Matthew. Giving to the poor... Tick. Praying, preferably in front of an audience. Tick. And fasting. Tick. They saw themselves as righteous because of the way that they lived, the boxes that they ticked. But Jesus challenged them, didn't he? He quoted Hosea 6, 6, and he said that it's not those things that I'm really interested in. God doesn't care so much about the rules. God wants us to love him, to have mercy on his people. This week, same setting, we have a different group of people come to talk to Jesus. This time it's John's disciples. And John's disciples were followers of John the Baptist, who you might remember from Matthew chapter 3. He was sent by God to proclaim the way of the Lord. He preached a message of repentance to the Israelites because the kingdom of heaven was near. And John also said that someone great was coming after him. That was his whole message. Watch for the one that's coming. So John's disciples, the guys that were following John the Baptist, they generally wanted to know about the kingdom of heaven. But it's important to note that the text that we're going to look at calls them John's disciples. John's whole ministry was about pointing to Jesus. Jesus has come, but for some reason these guys haven't yet made the switch. They're still John's disciples. And they come to Jesus with a question. It's about fasting. And they say to him, we fast... The Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Now, it's interesting that they mention themselves along with the Pharisees here because the Pharisees, for them, fasting was a sign of righteousness, right? It was on the list of things that make you right with God. 
And we see this from the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, who thanks God that he's not like the tax collector. And he says, you know, I fast twice a week. It's part of the things that he says, you know, this is what makes me good. And so John's disciples question Jesus about fasting. And really, what they're asking about is righteousness. They're asking, why is your list different from our list? Read verse 14 with me. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, if you're not already there. Verse 14 says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answers them by giving three short parables. Firstly, Jesus asks if the guests of a groom at a wedding feast, or they can, sorry, at a wedding feast can mourn while he's there with them. It's a pretty amazing thing to say if you think about it. Jesus is kind of making himself a big deal. It's like Anchorman. I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. He's the bridegroom, the star of the show. If he's around, you don't need to fast. You can celebrate. And the picture of a wedding feast is one that we can relate to, but I think it helps for us to make it bigger, to sort of put ourselves in the mindset that they would have been back then. And I think that a way that we can do that is to imagine, you know, a typical Western wedding compared to some Asian weddings. You go along to a Western wedding, you know, standard procedure, you get to choose the chicken or the steak, everyone looks good, the bride, of course, looks beautiful, it's a party, you probably know a lot of the people there, we have a lot of fun, nothing wrong with Western weddings. Then you go to an Asian wedding, you don't choose the chicken or the steak, you force yourself to eat through ten courses, one after another, brought to you, thinking, is this the end, only to have to stuff yourself with yet another delicious and yet more food. It doesn't stop. And the bride, how many... Dresses can you wear in one evening? I don't, I don't understand. There's, there's so many changes. It's like a, you know, a stage play. There's choreography. There's got to be something going on there. There's the helpers, I'm sure. And, and, and you don't necessarily know everyone when you sit down at the table. By the end of the night, you know them all anyway and you have a great time. And the ancient you know, sort of weddings in this time period were a lot closer to the Asian weddings, except they wasn't just 10 courses. They'd gone for days. It was a massive celebration. So the picture that Jesus is giving here is not you know, just a couple of hours of a good time on a Saturday afternoon. It's, it's a big joy. Being with Jesus is something to celebrate. But then he also goes on to say that there'll be a time to fast. There will be a time uh, when he is taken away. And it's the first time that he hints at his death to come. But for now, the joy that comes from being with him is his focus. Verse 15. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Now, Jesus gives us two more illustrations, both of them making the same point. First, he uses the example of someone trying to fix a garment with a hole in it. He says that no one takes an untrunk piece of cloth and sews it on to an old garment. What they used to do with fabrics is that they'd, they'd take a piece of cloth and they'd clean and comb it, try and get all the gum and oil off of it and that sort of thing, and they'd bleach it ready for use. And if you took a piece of cloth that wasn't prepared in this way and then you sewed it onto an old garment that had been prepared in this way, as soon as that new piece of fabric got wet, it would shrink and it would tear the, new, the old garment that you were trying to fix. What you were trying to fix, you'd essentially make even worse. The second parable that Jesus tells is about new wine. Uh, in the ancient Near East, if you made some new wine, you wouldn't take it and, and pour it into old wineskins. You'd get new wineskins. See, wineskins were made of leather, and leather starts off soft and pliable, but 
Once it's had wine in it, it becomes hard and brittle. And if you put new wine into these old, hard and brittle wineskins, then as the, the alcohol, as, as the wine fermented, uh, and it put pressure on the skin, it would burst and you'd lose your wine. So you can sort of see the point that Jesus is making, right? The new is incompatible with the old. When something new comes, the old thing cannot contain it. So what's the new thing? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's the new life that he brings. Jesus' coming is like new wine. It's like the unshrunk clock. But what's the old thing? It's the old list of religious ideas that the Pharisees and John disciples had. Fasting and other ways of obtaining righteousness. These things can't contain the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, Jesus is the bridegroom. He brings a new thing, a new thing that the old cannot contain. And what Matthew, the author of the gospel, is going, that we're reading is going to try and do is show us how this plays out. He's going to give us a picture of what this looks like. And he's going to do so by telling us three miracle stories about the healing of five people. The first begins with a Jewish leader. His daughter's died. He's come to Jesus to ask him to heal her. And it's worth noting that the father asked Jesus to come and touch his dead daughter. Now, according to Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, to touch a dead body was to become unclean. This ruler or maybe synagogue leader was asking Jesus to become unclean. But Jesus comes anyway. Verse 18. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him. And so did his disciples. But Jesus hasn't gone far before another unclean woman comes and finds him. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. I'm sure that some people in this room have dealt with the devastating pain of long-term illness and the debilitating effects that it can have. It's isolating. It cuts you off from people, particularly for a Jewish woman at this time. According to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, her bleeding made her unclean. This meant that she was ostracized from the people. If you're unclean, you couldn't be around the clean people. And it meant that she was ostracized from God because she couldn't go and attend worship services either. But somehow she must have found out about the power that Jesus had despite her ostracism. And she approaches Jesus from behind, desperate to be released, from the bondage and pain that she's in, and from her uncleanness. She reaches out to touch the edge of his cloak, simply believing that if she could just do that, then she'd be healed. Jesus, knowing he's been touched, turns and looks at her, and he says to her, have courage. Your faith has healed you. Or more literally, your faith has saved you. Verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. 
Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Now, story doesn't stop, it just keeps on going. Jesus reaches the house of the Jewish ruler, and the mourning for the little girl who has just died is in full swing. Now, I read uh, one commentary that said that at a Jewish funeral, you have to have at least two flute players and one wailing woman. So there were all sorts of like weird rules about you know, funerals and how they did it and all that sort of stuff. But the impression that we get here is one that the crowd is, is bigger than that. There's a big crowd that's gathered, maybe because it's a Jewish leader of some description who's been there. And Jesus tells them to go. It's Graham. And he says that the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, some of these guys were professional mourners. They're hired to go to the funeral. They know what a dead body looks like, right? But they go because Jesus tells them to. And he takes the unclean hand of the little girl and she gets up. Just like that. A dead girl just gets up. I mean, Matthew's understatement here is kind of amazing. You can just sort of read through it and sort of just miss the fact that a dead girl just got up. I mean, that's not ordinary, right? We don't typically see that. And perhaps unsurprisingly, news of this you know, not particularly ordinary event gets around. Jesus has raised a dead girl. Verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue's leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. So that's miracle story number one. Number two is we meet two blind men. Like the Jewish ruler and the bleeding woman before them, they come to Jesus looking for help. That's where you go. And like the bleeding woman and the dead girl, these blind men would have been on the outside of their community. See, blindness was regarded as the judgment of God. And blind people had some serious religious limitations put on them. See, this, this woman, the young girl, the, these blind men, they're all in a certain sense in exile. They're all outside of the promises that have been given to Israel. They're outside of the people of God. And so these blind men in this situation, excluded from the people of God, cry out and say, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now this title, son of David, was often linked to the Messiah in Jewish thought. We heard about it sort of in a tangential way way back in chapter 1 of Matthew. And Jesus takes the blind men indoors and he says to them, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can heal you, that I have the power to show mercy to you? And just as that Jewish ruler had faith, just as the bleeding woman had faith, these men also declare their faith. They do believe that Jesus can do these things. And in response, Jesus heals them. Just as the woman was healed, just as the dead girl was raised, through the new power that Jesus brings, the blind see. Jesus asks them to keep quiet. His time has not yet come, but it's of no use. They can't keep this a secret. And once again, news spreads about him all over the region. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. 
and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see to it that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Now, in classic Matthew story, the, the, in Matthew technique, the, the story just keeps on going. And before Jesus even has a chance to take a breath, a man made mute by a demonic possession is brought before him. It's, it's sort of like as the blind guys are going out one door, the mute man is, is coming in the front door. And you know, with the same lack of ceremony with which he just raised somebody from the dead, Jesus casts out the demon. I mean, it's like one line. I mean, I, I'm, I read this and I'm like, Matthew, really? We couldn't get some detail? What's going on here? But it's just, that's how, that's how it's happening. The man speaks, this, this person mute, no voice, now he speaks. Jesus' power is not just over death, sickness, blindness. He rules over evil forces as well. Verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd are, understandably, amazed. Uh, they've never seen anything like this. This is new wine. This is unshrunk cloth. The crowd was amazed, verse 33, and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But there's one group that's not happy. They like their old garments. They like their old wineskins. They see what Jesus has done, the new life that he brings, the incredible power in which he walks, giving life, healing people, making the blind see and setting people free from demons, the Pharisees see all this and they declare that it's the work of the devil. Verse 34, But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So can you see what's happening here in this passage? Jesus is the bridegroom. Where he is, there's the big party. That's the joy. That's the celebration. And he's brought something new, something that can't be contained by the old ways. But Jesus hasn't just said it, he's shown it. He's shown it by these amazing works of power, these miracles that he's been displaying. Those who were on the outside of the old covenant have received new life, new health, new sight, and a new voice through the power that Christ has brought. Jesus brings cleanness to the unclean. He brings sight to the blind, life to the dead, and a voice to the mute. His magnificent, glorious new kingdom looks like this. But notice what you need to do. There's no list to tick off, is there? There's no checkbox of what these people had to do before they could approach Christ. There's no list of good deeds to follow up with. No. It's all about coming to Jesus in faith. The father, the woman, the blind man, those who brought the possessed man, all of them believed that Jesus had the power to do something about their situations. They believed that Christ was the means by which they would receive life and healing and salvation. So the new wineskin that this new wine is to be contained in is faith. It's trust in Jesus. Do you get it? Jesus is the new wine, but you can't contain him in a list of good works. Your righteousness won't work. There's no to-do list that will fix this. This new wine can only be received by faith. There's no point trying to patch Jesus onto your list of you know, good things that you do to try and please God or anyone else. It won't work. Jesus tears all of that up. Jesus will only fit onto the garment of faith. 
What's on your list? What are the things that you feel like you need to tick off to feel like you're good with God? What makes you feel like your relationship with God is on track? If someone asks you the question, how are you going in your relationship with God? How would you answer? Or based on what would you answer? Would you start to think through the sort of list that we saw at the beginning? Praying, fasting, evangelism, whatever it may be. You know, reading the Bible. Have I been doing that lately? Am I doing okay? I mean, I think that's our first instinct, right? That's how we think about it when we think about our relationship with God. That's where we go immediately. But there's a pretty big hint that that's not good because one of the biggest problems with it is that it either leads to guilt or to pride. If you haven't managed to tick off your list, you feel guilty, like you failed. You feel like you haven't done a good enough job and that your relationship with God, therefore, is off track. If you have ticked it off, you feel proud, like you've done what you need to do, like you're better than other people. God should be happy with you and you walk off like John Wayne into the sunset or maybe that's just what I do in my own head. But most of us fall into one or both of these categories, don't we? Either feeling guilty or proud, maybe a mixture of both, depending on the day, right? But you know what? Jesus takes all of that sort of thinking and just blows it up completely, demolishes it. He's the man who takes our uncleanness and turns it into holiness. He's the man who takes our death and turns it into life. He's the man who takes our blindness and darkness and gives us light. He's the man who defeats Satan and opens our mouths to joyfully praise God. And all we can do is trust him. And this doesn't leave any room for pride. It leaves no room for guilt either because it's not about us. It's not about me and my list. It's all about our magnificent bridegroom, the one where the party's at. Think about the power of these miracles. The blind seeing, the mute talking, the sick healed, and the dead raised. What are any of your works compared to this? What can you do? How can you compare? And it's not just these things, but what about Jesus' most triumphant work, his work on the cross? What can we possibly do that could measure up to that? Why would we ever go back to our lists? Why would we ever go back off? go back to trying to tick off our own righteousness? Why would we ever try to fix our own relationship with God? But we do, don't we? We don't just need to repent of our sin. We need to repent of our attempts to be good enough to try and fix ourselves. We must instead believe in the power of Christ and what he has done for us. The temptation to hold on to our own ways is strong because the truth is it comes with much acclaim. You get respect, don't you, if you're known as the guy who prays and reads your Bible every day and fasts and does whatever other spiritual activities are there. And it's not just you know, in, in Christian, in church world either. It, it's also in the world. I mean, if you've got a, a good job, if you've got status, if you've got money, if you've got toys, there's a claim that comes with it. All these things that can make us feel upright in the community and, and in ourselves. There's, a, there's a, something that comes with that that's just so enticing. But if we follow those things, we'll feel proud. But those things cannot contain to the new life that we have in Christ. So why not try this? The next time that somebody says to you, how is your relationship with God? Maybe try this answer emphasize. 
Praise God. It couldn't be any better. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and by his grace, I'm ready and waiting for heaven. And maybe don't do it that loud. (laughs) Don't be weird. (laughs) But have that in your spirit. (laughs) Then my relationship is good with God because of what he has done. And rejoice in that. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and by his grace, I'm ready and waiting for heaven. Friends, Jesus is so much better than anything that we can do or offer. Give up on your lists. Call on him for mercy and rejoice in the new life that he gives us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are the new wine. And thank you so much that we can receive you through the new wineskin of faith. Thank you so much that you've taken us, poor, wretched, miserable, unclean sinners on the outside and brought us in to your people by the work of your son on the cross. We pray, Father, you would help us to remember this always, that we would not be deluded into thinking that it's about us or what we do or what we can offer, whether it be in church or whether it be in the world. Instead, help us to repent of our attempts to improve upon your perfect work and instead trust in everything that you've done for us, for our salvation our healing, our life in all eternity. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.